All right, welcome back to Mixed Messages, Father-Son Sessions. This is episode two of that, Heath Burr and Jepron Burr here in the house. Hey, Jepron, thanks for being back. I am happy to be back. That's cool. Thanks for having me. I know you've been wanting to do this. It's yeah. been a while, so it's good to get this next episode in. So we kind of like did a little regroup here, but I think, you know, just coming right off the hip, I'm going to kind of dive into my own little personal experience around like what was life for me at 20 and kind of what generation did I live in. I think you and I have talked about it a little bit, which was kind of fun as you were used to compliment the Gen Xers and say that they were kind of one of the generations that kind of had it together for a while until they didn't. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and that there was a lot to compliment about that generation. And then they kind of lost their way. It was one of your opinions. Is that, is that true? Yeah. So for me, just to add context, for me, that was through movies because, you know, I grew up with uh, Surf's Up, Ratatouille, uh, Meet the Robinsons, you know, like 2000s movies, like there's tons of them and everybody can have a different perspective. But for me, it felt a lot more positive, like it was a lot more positive rock music, especially Surf's Up. It was a lot more uh, genuine meaning, like there wasn't quite the limitation on what could be shared with children. There was higher kind of more intense concepts sometimes sometimes a little too much sometimes just right and and what would work so that was my perspective on where i really gave kind of the previous generation which would be my parents generation and a lot of my generation's parents was the idea that it seemed like there was hope it seemed like there was creativity and really creating optimistic content yeah, you know, I, I thought a lot about it since you mentioned it. Cause I think like in any generation, we don't really quite know that's what we're doing when we're in it, right? Yeah. You know, so for me, the generation above me, when I grew up, you know, it was all Blood Zeppelin and Queen and you know, that whole rock and roll, hippie, The Doors. And so I kind of was coming off the tail end of that. Although when I was really young, I was still listening to wait a minute, Mr. Postman, and some of that early rock that had not kind of gone acid and drugs yet, right? Yeah. And rock and roll and sex, love, and, and freedom, right? So by the time I was kind of in my adolescence, you know, all that was gone. Life became suburbia. It was the baby boomers had pretty much been covering the mortgage and, and moved out of that whole hippie dresses and stuff, right? But I still loved all that early rock and roll. Then it became, you know, Gen Xers came up with like Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister and Glam Rock, Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue and this kind of heavy metal thing. And you and your brother and I were listening to like music of the different generations, right? So there was that. And then when I graduated from high school and, you know, right about before and right during, it then became the grunge era. That was for a moment, this kind of freedom of anti-establishment. You know, and the ability to kind of flannels and jeans and uh, rage against the machine and even Twisted Sister, I kind of laugh at of like, we're not going to take it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there was, there was a whole anti-establishment kind of movement that was going with what I felt like was a lot of kids who grew up actually without major television, without major media, without major social media. So we were that generation who grew up on the big wheel as a kid. We were the generation who were out, you know, kicked out of the house and told that when the when the streetlights came on, you come home, right? We were the kids who were running around and getting lost, you know, at the railroad tracks and trying to keep ourselves busy while our parents were usually working. You know, we were the latchkey generation. So we had a lot of independence, no media, really. So a lot of personality. 
so as I look at that, I, I think the Gen X thing has it, you know, especially with the grunge and Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and then you had Prince kind of working his way through the whole thing, and you know, and I can look back and kind of see the framework of what I grew up in and kind of the optimism of what we were going for. And we were all told, I think you and I were talking about that yesterday, is like we were kind of told that you can do anything if you work hard. And I think that was, you know, it's generally a, you know, a U.S. all-American thing, but we were kind of still that generation where we still felt like if we had a high work ethic and, and we were motivated that we could work hard and succeed, but in a flannel, you know, that we could still be more ourselves and, and not be so cliche and pink polos and, you know, white shoes that we kind of looked at our parents as or kind of this other generation above us. But I think for me, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, it's kind of complicated to grasp what's going on in this generation and what is the youth thinking in this generation? What does the music reflect? There's a lot more hip-hop, but it's at all youth or, you know, like I, as I was going into school, it was, had the kind of heavy metal and then it went into new wave and then it went into grunge. Uh, you know, it's like, I kind of, I don't know, I guess growing up, I have a picture of what growing up like for me looks like. And I think a lot of us are kind of wondering, at least at my age, kind of wondering now, what does growing up look like for your generation and even people younger than you? And of course, there's this kind of pre-COVID, post-COVID, but it seems all the more amplified by the social media. It's all the more amplified by, like we talked about, cancel culture. It's all the more amplified by this kind of diverse range of music that, you know, isn't just one, right? It's kind of overload, I guess. And so I guess I pose the question for you is what's grown up for you at your age of 20? Like I knew where I was at and I kind of knew what got me from 20 to 30 to 40. And I've actually, luckily enough, as I look back and I have a lot of conversations with friends and, and ex-girlfriends and people who've known me over the years, I've kind of hit the marks of everything that I set out to do at 20. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I was talking about moving back to the mountains someday, working remote, which we're here now, at 20. Mm -hmm. And I'm always surprised that, like, I haven't really changed that much. And so as soon as I left home and went about my way, I kind of got to live most of what I kind of set my sight out to do at your age. And now you're your age, you know, getting ready to do the same. And I'm just kind of curious what you might say about what you feel your generation is. You know, like the hippie era, you know, the grunge era, you know, these different eras. What's the era we're in now? What is the Gen Z era? How do you explain it? You know, from a limited knowledge and standpoint, the interesting thing is I think that because of, you know, maybe we can always go back to technology, right? We can always go back to, oh, new generation technology, blah, blah, blah. But it is a thing. That's why we all go to it. So... It seems from my perspective that my generation actually has different groups. You know, there's a lot of kind of separation in terms of, of perspectives. Like maybe in the past, you know, there have always been the rich and the poor and there's there's always been separation. Clicks or whatever. Clicks, right? yeah. yeah. But I think that in some aspects, it feels like clicks have extended into lifestyles versus maybe before it would have been a high school thing and then after high school that kind of eliminated and then people moved forward and just kind of maybe then joined a similar workforce that sounds right can we pause on that for a second yeah that sounds totally right like i can go back to my generation of the breakfast club and you know the movie and that was the jock and kind of the 
you know, the the weirdo and the geek and the supposed druggie rebel and, you know, the those kind of, you know, new waiver and those kind of five categories really did pretty much encompass our version of clicks. Right. And then to your point, once we got out of high school, we were all just kind of the same people going to work and Yeah. And we didn't really carry that click, I don't think. I think a lot of my friends who were really amazing new waivers. I know I can think of a guy that I went to school with, Carly Reese, was a, you know, kind of the amazing epitome of wore the cool pointed shoes and had the amazing hair and stuff. And I see him now on Facebook working at Disney for years. And everybody kind of grew up and kind of just became the same, to your point. There was not much to that same click distinction where you're saying like that. It's almost like those spectrums of click keep going. Yeah. And, you know, one thought process I just thought of, and this is, you know, what would make sense is, so you figure in high school, the jocks are basically the same guys that have known each other for the four years. All the different cliques are the same people in the school. Maybe you'd have other jocks that would kind of meet each other, different high schools, things like that. You know, but once you would normally leave high school, you kind of separate from a lot of your old friends. You separate from the people that you related to in a way that would allow a click, where now in social media, you can be in contact with like-minded people all the time. Oh, totally. And then you have to put in then the factor of there are still maybe, the football thing at least is still a click. You know what I mean? That is still a click. Men will still get together and watch the game. But now you've got gaming you know, you've got gamers, which is actually huge. Like, that's probably the biggest click of my generation, to be honest. Like, it's, it's gamers straight up into adulthood. It's a point where, unless there is some sort of exclusivity, like parents who truly weren't on that spectrum of gaming, like, they not playing a video game at least once is the exception now. I personally believe that. Like, I personally believe if you were to talk to as many Gen Zers as possible and ask them, hey, have you played a video game before? A huge majority would say yes. And a lot would say, yeah, but I'm not a gamer and, and I don't play regularly and I'm not really into games. But they've played. And that's kind of something really fascinating because I don't think the same majority of people would have played football or you know was a nerd oh right totally good point yeah the jocks were the jocks and and i actually felt like it was loneliest for the jocks when they got out of high school because they didn't get celebrated as much anymore right right you know what i mean yeah. like they didn't get to walk down the halls in their jersey you know their jerseys and their letterman jackets and just high five in and so i always felt you know and I, my friend anthony tafaris is a dear friend of mine and he was like the ultimate jock, you know, super athlete and everything. And he went on to the Navy and so on. But he's made an amazing life for himself. But just that image of like the athletes who no longer get to be these like super stars in high school and have yeah. to be normal people like everybody else. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they still don't have their interest in watching football and all that. But very few went on to play professionally or whatever, right? Right. Where like they're saying like here, like, gamers or a whole bunch of culture can kind of keep it going after high school because there's still an audience. And gaming is significantly easier and more accessible than doing a sport or having to learn a trade. Like there is a sense and there is a thing now of like tournaments and 
there's a sense of of people that really do get really good and then, you know, find a living off of it. But in the reality, if you were to think of like a video game, not everybody is using the same computer. When people play something in a field, they're in the same field. So there's a lot more interaction. So other people are going to get mad if you're running into them, if you're messing up the game. So there's a, there's a lot more kind of minimums of how much you have to actually be able to do even just to be on the field and play the game. Right, like a team sport requires you to be a team, right. team player or whatever, where gaming doesn't, right, necessarily. I mean, there's, For most there's... of the time, you know, to do good, to play competitively, yes, but to move a character around, jump a couple times, do a couple controls. Or even just your own shooter game where you're not playing in a multi-user. Exactly, first-player stuff. First-player stuff, you're just yeah. cranking away, doing your own thing then no, it doesn't require any kind of anybody else. So then you can choose how much you want to put into it. So take you and Natalie, for instance, you know, she's been on the show, you you know, and so I, I can relate to where she, her background is and she shared it here as well, right? What are some of the other genres like for her, like in you? I mean, how would you describe yourself? You're not a gamer. I mean, you, you enjoy some gaming, but you kind of didn't go that route. Yeah. Right? I mean, what genre or, you know, would you call yourself in the Gen Z and then maybe is, is using Natalie as an example, you're very similar, but what would she be? I mean, she seems very politically activism to me, right? Very make a difference in the world, which is inspiring. Yeah. I see that in you as well. Is that rare in Gen Z? Well, I think the scary thing is when you start to think that people can be defined simply by a group that they resonate with. I think that is one of the scariest realities you know, of social media, because ultimately a lot of the reality of that only exists when you believe it. So for me, I feel more human than anything. I feel more like just a guy and I just do my thing. I believe in what I believe in, but I don't have a click. I don't have clicks. I really do not. And I feel like even a lot of gamers do not have clicks. I do think that there is a danger though of a certain amount of people who, and I would say because of the accessibility to stare at a computer for hours and because of the accessibility of truly being able to be disconnected from reality, which maybe hasn't been as available in the past, such as what I kind of talked about, about normally you're interacting with other people. Normally you're responsible for the people around you. Gaming doesn't really require that. Slandering people on social media doesn't require that. Activism on social media doesn't require that. It has real-life consequences, and it affects other people, and it creates a culture where people are subscribing to certain things and choosing to get really stuck in it. But I think the question at that point becomes, are you stuck in something, or are you actually still functioning in the real world. So I guess what I would say is that for me personally, I do have things that I believe in. I put a lot of time and energy on, maybe not a lot of time and energy because it's a natural thing, right? So it's not like I'm doing it as a job. But if I wanted to buy a bamboo divider, which I did for my room, you know, typically people that I would be talking to, they'd look it up on Amazon and they'd be like, bam, this is like a hundred bucks. Let's buy it. 
My perspective is no, because I don't know how it's manufactured. I don't know where the wood comes from. I don't know if it was made in China with child labor. I would rather buy a $600 divider that I know is more handmade, let's say from Japan. So that is one thing that's different. And one thing that I could say might even correlate to a shift in perspective that I think a lot of millennials as well as Gen Z, a lot of generations have started to become awakened to it, but it is a new generational thing because it's a new world thing, is the call of of sustainability, is the call of are we being responsible or are we just kind of mindlessly consumering? That's a great point. And I think it's, do you think any of that came from everybody seeing that my generation and generation above me were actually not leaving you guys with a good world? Did you hear that growing up? Like that we were busy destroying the world and you guys are going to be left with less? Or how do you feel like that political convictions came about within this new generation? Because I, I see that on LinkedIn and other people who are like, you're misreading this generation. They actually give a shit. Yeah. So I think the main thing is, so I am different and I'm also not that different. I'm really not that different, but I am completely off of social media. I am completely off of social media. I really don't play games. So I'm not in the same digitized thing where my reality has to do with the people that happen to look at me while I'm walking on the street or when I'm at a grocery store or when I leave the house. That's when I'm communicating. That's when I'm having feedback of the human to human interactions, right? I'm not getting the same news, opinions, things. And I think that that ultimately does make a difference because I do care about what I buy. I do care about where it comes from. I do. And for me, it was through actually marine biology. It was through a whole different, you know, complicated version of just recognizing that water is really sensitive. It's weird, but it kind of comes from runoff. Basically, if you are littering or you're not properly managing crops, things like that. Let's say you threw bread on the side of the road. You think it's harmless. It's going to decompose in the ground. Well, if it rains and that bread goes into the water cycle and enough people threw bread, all of a sudden you actually do have slightly broken down nutrients, which is food. And that's where you get red algae blooms because you get basically plants that eat it all up, grow, change the environment. So that kind of was where my sustainability originated. So I'm not really sure how or why it really became a trend. I would guess a lot of it would be because of climate change, climate activism, global warming. But I do think that um, there's a slightly different conviction that comes from trying to fight global warming on social media and actually just... Still living normal, but making slightly better decisions. I think on social media, you get so stuck into this is a huge crisis. We have to do all these things, blah, 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 blah. You know, but that's kind of like if you were to, to act like you needed to learn how to play a piano in like a day, like that's, you know, it's easy to become overwhelmed, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is I think a lot of people become overwhelmed and then they become scared and then they become concerned 
and then they do want to make differences and they do want to, you know, make better choices, but maybe then they get so overwhelmed that they can't not talk about it because they're stressed about it. They can't not make constant posts about global warming or constant conversations. So then they become obsessed with something that is supposed to just be, you know, hey, maybe something's happening. How can I live better? And I think that ultimately, if you eliminate the social media, but you keep the willpower and the care, which a lot of my generation has, it's a natural process. It's a natural process of just genuinely starting at where am I buying my food? Where am I buying my products? That kind of thing. And it grows and, you know, you become more of an environmentalist or more of an activist or whatever. But social media keeps you in the conversation and less in the action is kind of the problem is where you become because if you're spending your time on the phone talking about global warming, are you not using electricity? I mean, like, I don't know. I just think I was bringing up a funny thing. I'm not trying yeah, to yeah, knock on anybody. It sounds like what you're saying is like there's, you know, there's the politics and then there's the lifestyle, right? Yeah. But then, okay, so then kind of moving through that a little bit more, how do you explain the great resignation that's occurring right now? Right. How do you explain people not showing up for work? And Yeah. So my perspective on that is actually I'm very optimistic about the great resignation because I feel that even if things get a little awkward, I have felt for a little while that there are more restaurants than people who are meant to be chefs. I can completely understand that there is a huge population and it's like, what do you do with all these people? And then additionally, if people are addicted and struggling and you know they're so in their mind which is what i was really trying to refer to with the environmental thing is when people care a little too much then they're not really able to still live their normal today lives that kind of limits people actually being aware enough and being themselves enough and outside of the digital world to maybe kind of figure out what they want to do. Like it makes sense to me that somebody who is constantly drunk might have a harder time figuring out what their life goals are and their passions. And then maybe they're just going to end up at Subway to afford enough money to buy booze. So there's two sides. There are more establishments for certain things because of trends than what people are maybe meant to do. And then that creates a big dissatisfaction and creates a big resignation because people just do not want to do those jobs. If you think about us as human beings, like, sure, I like to go to a restaurant, I like to get some food. I know that there's the other part of that where somebody has to clean the kitchen, somebody has to cook, somebody has to prep, somebody has to do all the things to make that happen so that me and thousands of other people are able to essentially have the food. You know, so I understand that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is what we like to do as human beings. We like to learn and laugh and run and play. I don't see myself, and I don't think a lot of people see themselves, mopping a floor and wiping a counter as something that they would personally want to do that would bring them satisfaction. As a lifelong ambition. As a lifelong ambition. Right. And that's kind of, I think, one of the differences is maybe in the past there was a conversation of 
you know, well, you have to do that. And the then, world needs ditch diggers too. So we used right, to say when we grow. Right. right. But there was the assumption that eventually you were going to retire or eventually like that you were sacrificing so that then you're going to get something out of it. Well, now everybody knows that you work until you die Yeah. with the current system. Everybody knows that there is like no retirement kind of anymore. Yeah, fair. So I think that that has shifted the perspective of really not being willing to sacrifice all of that time on something that just is really not fitting what makes you happy. happy. Yeah, I like that too. I think I'm really optimistic about it as well because I think, as I was saying, our generation, at least growing up, you know, we were in the grind culture for quite a while, right? We were hustle culture, I guess, right? And I can say for myself, it didn't pay off, right? Like, right. I'm grateful for the life I live, but, you know, all the extra hours, you see it now, just even post-COVID and everything, and this kind of, you know, everybody's like, that job's going to replace you a day after you die. You know, everybody's going to mourn for about a day, and then they've already got a job requisition open for your position, right? All those extra volunteer or overtime hours, they're not going to be remembered, Every moment you gave up living your best life for the job is really unappreciated. Yeah. It's pretty thankless. So the next generation, I, I would hope, would see that and learn from that and say, yeah, I ain't going to do that. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a new perspective that in the past, maybe you really did believe that you were going to be thanked. And yeah, I agree. Like, it's just not the reality anymore. Your day-to-day -day is your day-to-day, -day, your life is your life. Yeah, most of the big work world has been thankless. And the big retirement really windfalls, even for my generation, didn't happen. I used to say, and still probably just coming to the end of, is I was wildly delusional about how successful I was going to be just because I was so inspired to be it. Right? I just thought by setting my sights on that and trying to live into it and work my butt off and move to New York and the moment I got to HBO and... I'm at headquarters, HBO, Bryant Park. I'm not in Chicago Annex, HBO. I'm like in the same buildings as the top leaders of the best entertainment company in the world. I'm going to get discovered, you know, somehow, yeah. right? And no, it was just another job. I mean, there was some real comfort in learning the reality of all that, that it wasn't just some movie that I was living in. But I think we were pretty, I was pretty delusional growing yeah. up. And now I'm definitely more selective about how I spend my day-to-days. And to your point, I think the old saying in Hollywood was there's 2,500 acting jobs a day in Hollywood and there's 200,000 actors. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty disheartening growing up, meeting all of these wannabe actors who worked so hard and was working at the restaurants and wanted, you know, really that's what they chose and then ultimately really never got to be. And so, so many dreams that didn't really get realized as which was kind of like the lie, if you will, that you could just, if you wanted it in America and you believed in it so much, you could have it. I don't think that's true. I think circumstance, proximity, timing, luck, all these things are now much more realized. And now it's also, what's the negative impact? I know for me growing up, even though I kind of switched gears on that for a while, it's, as you say, like the Gen Xers kind of had it and then and let it go in a way. Gandhi was such a big impact on me. I really, I loved the do no harm, right? And I think I'm kind of going back to that now. But it sounds like, you know, as you're saying, like, 
as you're in a restaurant and you're looking at your version of aesthetic, you're looking at your version of, you want to know that that place is unique and that people love working there and that the food you're eating is coming from a place where everybody there is feeling lucky to be there. Right. And that's what makes it a good experience. Not just that you get to be the lucky one who yeah. goes in there and eats a good meal on the backs of multiple other people who aren't living a good life and just trying to make sure that you get your good meal. Yeah, and I think the unfortunate thing is that because of just the way that businesses have kept cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs, as a consumer, it's kind of sucky because if it was just that, that would be kind of nice. But in reality, my concern is that if I got the cheapest thing on the market, is just unethical. Like it is basically kind of poison as far as food is. And then it is like children and it's, you know, unfair wages. So, you know, for me as a consumer, that's where my ethics comes in is just, can we meet the bare minimum? Like, you know, I can't act like I'm going into a restaurant every time being like, is everybody having a yeah, good time? Yeah, of course, right. <laughs> no, I'm just trying kind of, yeah. to make sure that if I'm buying a thing of chocolate, you know, because that's actually kind of, there are many, 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 many chocolate bars that are out there that are about fair trade and are ethical and things like that. And part of that is because that is, you know, one of the things that are abused as far as I know is fair trade which is basically that the people in another country are getting a living wage for harvesting, you know, what ultimately travels across the world so that I could enjoy it. You know, and to me, like that is kind of a minimum, like a minimum of a certain level of healthy food and also that the workers aren't essentially unnecessarily poor. So then another kind of big one out there, you know, is obviously you grew up in as a family of divorce, right? Yeah. And, you know, by the time you know, you became an adult, you know, the divorce ratio was 50% or more. Mm-hmm. Probably by now it's like 60, 75% chance of somebody getting divorced. And I've always said, as I started to realize, we live in a trade-in or trade-up, trade-off culture, you know, where especially with the advent of dating sites and stuff like that. It's like, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to swipe right and go find somebody else, right? Yeah. Even with marriage. Yeah. And without the same religious fundamentals and you know ethical fundamentals around family and the independence and autonomy of relationship versus agreements of family, right? Where do you think your generation sits with marriage and family? Honestly, I think that's very varied. That is one of the things that I will say comes down to the parents. You know, I think a lot of my generation had parents that were strong and came from a place of love and were committed. And a lot of those children are probably going to feel a bit more optimistic. Like, you know, they're going to want a partner and they're going to have a life, things like that. I think another part is the living scenario. You know, a lot more of the middle class, you know, maybe he's going to feel a bit more optimistic about the settling down, kids, that kind of thing. I do think that to your point, back in the day, if you were in the countryside, all of the girls in your high school class pretty much were the options. You know what I mean? Like you had like 
depending on the size, if you were really in the country country, you know, between all the other people that were already together, between your personal taste, things like that, like maybe you had like five options, maybe even less, you know. So I imagine in that scenario, it didn't feel as easy to feel that there was more access to all different types of of people and cultures. And, you know, I think on one side, there is a little bit of intimacy. There's more intimacy these days, which in some ways can be a bit more freeing, can be a bit more kind, mainly from just not judging people for their sexualities or judging people right away for doing certain things like kissing someone very quickly, things like that. But because of that, you know, it's almost like unlocking the full package early on. You're like, why wait? And then when you get the full package, you missed out on all of the background that typically would have been necessary of courting, relationship development, courting, understanding, learning, earning that relationship, you know, right? Choosing them because you get to kiss make out have sex quicker yeah basically that's pretty much what i'm referring to is that the sex for a lot of people is kind of like the end game so you get the end game and then you hardly really know the person at a truly really deep understanding level yeah so probably less gratitude when you actually land intimate relationship and you're actually having sex and you're thinking oh my god I'm emotionally lifted in this relationship, you know, because now I'm actually finally get to have sex with them and I'm feeling more and I'm lucky because, you know, there's not very many other options around me or anything else. You know, now that it comes so much faster that I guess it would be harder to feel overwhelmed in love and gratitude to want to double down and commit to this person. Yeah. And particularly your language you know, and your understanding of it speaks for itself. A lot of eyes, you know, a lot of, oh man, I'm getting this out of it. This is so good to me. This feels good. And then when you were referring to it, um, you weren't really referring to the person. The focus is just off because you're not focused on the sacrifice, you know, the hard work and what some aspects of marriage is, which is volatile. So I'm not going to act like I know too much. I'm not married. But essentially, yeah, the focus is about the experience, the experience more than the person. Thank you. That's a great one. The experience more than the person and more than the actual act of facing life with the person. It's about the experience with the person. There's not the commitment because there's not the future outlook. It's a very now. Temporary. Yeah. So that was a big conversation is, you know, again, and I think this is goes beyond generations, but kind of two parts. I'll say one part is, you know, obviously the advent of MTV and kind of hip hop allowed us to see people come from nothing into being big celebrities and stuff is getting things easy, getting success easy, right? Versus when I was growing, it was you work hard for it and it'll come. All of a sudden there became this kind of, it's going to come easy. And so, yeah, parts of it did. You got to wear nicer clothes and look fancier. You got to maybe lease or buy a used Mercedes and act rich, but you weren't, right? You got to, for all intents and purposes, get laid more and things like that, right? That made you feel more, I guess, rich and successful, right? 
but then that also I think is kind of worn itself out a little bit too, where everybody knows they're not going to be the instant sensational YouTuber. They're not going to be the top super DJ. They're not going to make a demo album, become an instant star. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of, we're all clear on that now, right? Yeah. There's an elitism that still is occurring out there, right? Is that depressing? What happens next when people have to now realize that it isn't going to come easy anymore? I mean, sure, there's the, like we just talked about, some of the experiences come a little easier, but certainly fame doesn't come easy. Do you think about that at all? or This, in essence, is going to sound a little weird, that reminds me of just right back to is the person more narcissistic or are they humble? And I think that that's where they're going to change and how they react to that scenario. I think a lot of the humbler people, you know, might feel a little disheartened. But I also think that a lot of more humble people don't really feel like that that whole social media sudden easy thing is as accessible. I feel like a lot of people actually are realistic. Like, you know, as much as it might not seem like, like... It's a good thing, I think. Yeah, like, I think the majority of people probably are actually realistic, yeah. especially the adults. And then with kids, that's just kids dreaming. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't think that people maybe take that super seriously. I think the difference is hip-hop culture, you know, in certain aspects like that, there's a theme of really, really, really believing it even before it happens like that's part of the hip-hop culture is like i'm gonna be a rap star i'm gonna be a rap star i'm gonna be a rap star and holding on to that because in hip-hop the idea and if you think about it and the way that hip-hop even works these days where you're rapping about the materialism the mindset is that if you rap enough about believing in yourself other people will believe in you and then you'll become a rap star so I think that there is a difference a little bit with kind of the YouTube thing. I think that people don't really know YouTubers as intimately as maybe you would think, because I think that there's this perception kind of like with musicians that this kind of interaction, um, digital, like you're like seeing into the lives of these YouTubers or there's a expectation of, of intimacy, you know, into you, my, I see intimacy. But in reality, it's not that intimate because you are only seeing what the camera allows. You're only seeing what the editing allows you. You have no idea, I would guess, 90% of the person's life. Like, yes, a lot is shared in terms of a lot of time, you know, maybe house tours, things like that, but not to the level to where you can really understand why somebody becomes popular on YouTube. So then what happens is, you know, people want to be trendy, you know, so people try and fit these trends on this kind of material aspect when in reality, most of the time, it's everything else. It's not the the mannerisms, the loudness. It's actually kind of that this guy looks aesthetically pleasing, you know, I like the energy, I like his mannerisms. You know, you can't copy somebody else's mannerisms and be successful because people don't want to watch someone who's not themselves, usually, would be my guess. So then on that question, do you think people are more authentic now or are they more self-absorbed now or both? 
Honestly, I think that we had a big thing where people were becoming more authentic, people were becoming more free, people were becoming more open about things. And then what happened is it got almost like you start something good and then it's good and it's good and you're into it and you're doing it. But then when the obsession happens, the original good just is lost. And I think that that's unfortunately what's really happened with politics, social media, maybe even older generations perspectives on, you know, the president, what it means to have someone good leading a country, you know, the world isn't the way that the world used to be. And I feel like there is a lot of pessimism to that, but coming from an optimistic place you know, I think that overall there has been a lot of, of growing freedoms, but there has also become a lot of expectations, labeling, and judgment. A lot of us and thems, because the more that you become more expressive, the more you become more defined and definitive, you know, is, is how the trend seems at least, which is unfortunate. It's kind of the, yeah, the downside versus the optimism that we've been talking about there. It's just a lot of us and them. Yeah. A lot of that duality and battle of all or nothing. And these people are bad. These people are good. Yeah. It's good to be free in who you are, but not everybody has to recognize it. Not everybody has to know, you know, all of your, your labels and versions. And, and not everybody deserves a bullhorn to tell everybody what their opinions are. Right? Yeah. I think that's one of the frustrating things that, you know, I think I find is, and it's taken me a while to even calm myself down in it, is that we all don't deserve the mic. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, and there was a point where our privacy was important. You didn't have to tell your neighbor who you voted for. Yeah. That was actually your business. Right? Yeah. You didn't have to tell them what your belief system was around abortion or, or what it was around a religion or what it was yeah. like you had a normal middle way life right you like yeah. you raised children you showed up for your, your work you tried to have pride in your work you tried to be a good friend you tried to be a good neighbor your politics for a long time were kept out of that and now it's like if you don't take a big stand for your politics and raise your sword for what you quote unquote believe in politically well then you're looked down upon or you're you're not in the game. And I think that's kind of a misfortune right now because I think it's stolen a lot of the nuance of living. It's stolen a lot of the middle ground. I think we're more like I've always said, and that's what this show's always about, is I think we're we're more alike than we are different always as humans. But now it feels like it's a big political battle of personalities as to what you're supposed to you're supposed to show up with all these badges of I'm this, I'm that, I'm Black Lives Matter, I'm pro this, I'm anti this. And it's like you're a walking billboard for these philosophical and or political beliefs. And, I, right. and that's really separatist. One of my guesses would be that that kind of comes from not being able to let go once you've come out of the closet. I don't want to put that on any kind of groups. But what I mean to say is I think that there's a misconception or might have been a misconception somewhere which might have been linked to a reality of people were afraid to speak out. People were afraid to be expressive, like that society would almost be against you for wanting to be who you were. Fair point. And maybe part of that is because, yeah, if you talked about having negative mental health or thoughts and things like that as a man, like 
that was very like, dude, what's wrong with you, yeah. you know, in the past. So I think that there was that kind of want to be recognized and be expressed. And maybe that in and of itself isn't a very harmful emotion, but that is a place of self. That is a place of, of selfishness. You want to be recognized. Right. You want to be appreciated. You want to be loved by being some sort of, of title. And I think that a lot of the hate crimes was unfortunate. And I think that a lot of the healing was where a lot of the groups who actually did experience hate crimes were able to come out and be appreciated and be okay being themselves. But ultimately, you know, if you're not able to then let that go and then just be normal and not have to be constantly expressive, then it starts to bleed into other topics, other politics, other beliefs. And I think that... um. You know, in the past, maybe there was a much better understanding of overall just the kind of humble, quiet life. We don't need to make problems at the dinner table. And then what originally came from healing hate crimes became like, no, I want to speak on what I believe. That is amazing. I actually really had never thought of that. It's a real, that's kind of a breakthrough for me. And I appreciate you bringing that to my attention because I don't think I really thought that before of like just using the example of growing up with my friends who you know didn't want to come out of the closet with being gay and how tormenting that was right but then ultimately when they finally got to come out it decompressed they got to be relieved they no longer had to keep that secret you know and hopefully in in many cases their family adjusted they then got to go back to being the son they got to go on with their life and still right. pursue their career without their sexuality being a part of it. Right. They got to fall in love with who they wanted to and live a normal quote on life, you know, meaning they get to just go be married to their spouse and whatever, same sex or whatever. But it wasn't their whole identity. Right. right. They actually got to now breathe and say, okay, I'm out. This is the truth of me, but now back to being human. Right. Versus like now grabbing a flag and running down the street and, Now, you know, having to have to have this be their entire persona, having to now have a huge stance on it ongoing, like you're right, they don't get to actually just relax and just go back to being human. They're now all this. Because I guess the recognition wasn't enough. The recognition wasn't enough. The, the, The being okay and accepted wasn't enough. Now it had to be something more and more and more. That's so fascinating. I think that that helps me at least kind of get some more common ground on some of all of these movements and why they've gotten so blown up and yeah but also some of the loneliness that occurs because that isn't necessarily as satisfying i mean how much can you continue to preach the same thing over and over by yourself after you've already been kind of accepted for it right why does your life have to be a cause right and that goes back full circle uh to the social media thing is social media is the only platform where you can continue to create the problem to create the fuel for the fire. In reality, how many people are going to hate crime nowadays, especially my generation? Like, okay, it's unfortunate. In the past, it probably was a big problem. It probably was more hate crime than anything else. We're not marginalizing that, but yeah. 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 But, But, you know, nowadays, I wonder if now it's just hate. Mm -hmm. That if somebody who has hate crime for being gay is at the same ratio as somebody who 
has hate crime for just walking weird, somebody who gets hate crime for having a limp, somebody who gets hate crime for a certain race. You know, like there are problems at larger scales and there was a lot that was done to kind of heal that. But ultimately, I feel like social media creates a way for it to really come across as if it's a bigger problem than it still is. And I believe politicians do too. I yeah. believe the political landscape does as well. I mean, I think the Democrats are going in one direction, Republicans are going another, and they are pitting each other against each other. And I, so, yeah, I think that there are all kinds of external forces and media and politics that kind of help perpetuate that when at the end of the day, why can't we all just get along after we all can just honestly be ourselves? Yeah. Right. In whatever form that is. You know, I know for me, I was fully expressive and I had my own, my own coming out of the closets in many cases, you know, and I think it's true for a lot of people, whether there was simple stuff like just being, you know, profoundly insecure and not wanting to admit that, or like you said, being a man who has to now admit to being more vulnerable and volatile and all these things that are not supposed to present in the world of stoicism and things like that. You know what I mean? So, but again, the freedom of being able to finally acknowledge that and being accepted by the ones you love at once, at one time was the win. But now, like you said, it just joined the club. Everyone. They want everyone. Like no hate at all. Exactly. You know, right. and that just cannot happen that will never because happen. there are always going to be different perspectives, and they're always going to be know? bullies. And yeah, they, and they're, they're always, always because you know? trauma. I mean, yeah. the more that you get into a group, right? And at least for me, at least for me and my whatever way of understanding things, the more that you can actually start understanding the connection with other groups. And common traumas. And, you know, this idea of, as you were saying, if you get off the social media and you go outside, we're probably more alike than different. We're, and especially in, in a modern situation of a society like now where we do a, a, literally a lot of the same things. Like a lot of us go to the similar grocery stores. We drive the similar way, you know, things like that. But yeah, like basically is... To be in reality, I got a little, I went a little far on that. That's good. That's where we can, that's where we can pause, right? Yeah. So then there's also white privilege. Here we are, a couple of white boys, right? And that's a tough one because, you know, me, I've spent a lot of time and trying to talk about colonialism and we've seen gentrification firsthand and we know that white privilege is a thing, right? I mean, that's the statistics are clear as day, right? I'm confident in saying a very multi-culty family and have always accepted and loved and been loved by multiple cultures in our life. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about some of the growing up as a young white man in the world of you're white and you're privileged and so therefore you should shut the fuck up? Yeah, so I think that, as I said, I'm not on social media, so you've kind of helped me understand a little bit of a perspective on where, you know, people seem to be really angry. And again, that's kind of different to my perspective was very pro Black Lives Matter. I did protests. Um, I was on it. I was very part of the movement of, of peace and love and healing and fighting for the people. But ultimately, the more hate 
is involved, the more I find myself less inclined to these movements. So, you know, I think on one side, when I think of culture, I'm going to say black, you know, which is interesting because everybody's like, no, it's African-American. Not everybody's from Africa. Some, you know, might be from actually, you know, some of the, I think even maybe South America, like, you know, there are colors everywhere. So anyway, you know, so the thing with the black community is in the last year or two, I really have kind of been awakened to a lot of uh, black culture, stoicism, and what is called black excellence. And I like to try and respect that more than try and go for this constant uh, narrative of this community that is just on the bottom of everything. Because I feel that as a culture, if you can acknowledge how far the culture has come, regardless of basically the adversity, you know, then you can kind of respect the culture. But if you're so focused on the adversity and you're victimizing the culture, you know, you're undermining, or at least for me, it would feel like undermining all of the the hard work, the progress, and all of the black excellence and success and riches and wealth that a lot of people who either came out of the lower income places or grew up wealthy too. Right. With excellence that have gone on for generations. Right. Right. Whether it be Latin or Asian or black or white. Right. So I think that, you know, still making it the problem is keeping it as a problem. I think that, sure, there is traumas. You know, let's disconnect it from race. Let's disconnect it from the evil white guys, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, traumas. Traumas might have a large place in whether families are a bit more stuck on welfare, whether families are still stuck in in a mindset of PTSD, hood mentality, you know, things like that. Like there's a lot of harshness that comes from growing up in the kind of black communities that you would call the hood. But ultimately, is it still only and completely the ancestors that are causing that? Is it still white privilege in the current white people? Or is it the traumas, you know, that are still in the parents of the new black generation that are keeping those parents there? You know, I think that it is hard. It is hard to get out of the segregation and and get out of all of the history But I just don't think that white people are treating black people the way that white people used to treat black people. And the reason why it's still a problem is because there is still so much passed down traumas and reactions and feelings and ultimately maybe some police aspects of things. There's always going to be bullies and that's, I don't want to totally be super one way, but hate is hate. Hate is hate. And I feel like, again, if you get off the social media, I don't believe that 50% of the people that I see on the street outside are racist. I would rather that not be a reality. I think if you are only on the social media pages that give a mic to, you know, if there was a million racist people, you know, across the country, which is huge, that is one three hundredth ish of the population. That is still such an insignificant amount. I think it's a really you know? strong point. And I think I want to just 
touch on that, and then I think it's a good place for us to pause in today's show because I want to come back on the next show and really go back into trauma and grief because we both have walked through that. I know I am personally walking through a bunch of that on my other podcast, Bars Closed, recognizing I think we're seeing a real trend in healing and people talking about healing and talking about healing in their relationships, talking about healing their generations. And I know the trauma and grief wants to be acknowledged. Yeah. And in many cases, it hasn't. But I think to your point, I think that what we are seeing, that, that yes, social media and certain aspects of media are amplifying, let's just put the police thing aside, right? right. We, we do know that that targeting's happening and all that's still, and there's, there's work to be done there. But all of these generations and all races are coming out recognizing how much you know, my father's drinking came from his father's drinking, the physical abuse that came from the other people's, the, the lost childhoods that many of us had of all races came from generations of trauma. And a lot of that comes from power, power exchange, mm-hmm. and the haves and the have-nots, mm-hmm. whether they be of any race. And so I do feel optimistic that if we can start to focus in on our own traumas and our own excellence and celebrate the excellence of all races more openly and acknowledge our own traumas and our own brokenness more candidly and stop listening to the smaller subsections of the social media and the media that are amplifying that this is a bigger human problem than it is anymore and that we're really all still that against each other well, you know, the old days, it used to be cool to be a good human being, regardless of what you went through in life. That used to be cool. And now, because everybody can connect and feel each other and be involved with each other on social media, it feels like the new cool is, hey, I believe this, racism, And not saying that they believe in racism, but saying that they are like, hey, racism exists. You know, I'm for the blacks, you know, and then other people are like, I'm for the blacks, too. And then they feel a sense of of importance, maybe like there's a sense of like, yeah, we're doing good works. What is it really doing? I mean, and I guess that's the comparison is, you know, is it, it used to be about like, hey, let's get through the adversity and there is white privilege. Yeah, because of the traumas, because of the idea that there is the black community dealing with so much harsher history than what a lot of the white population would be dealing with, not to mention a lot of the finances that are put down in families and things like that. The only problem is that when you think that you're being cool, you know, by being politically charged. an activist and politically charged, how can you feel like you're the good guy if there's not a bad guy? Yeah, exactly. I do think that's a big deal. And then that's where the hate, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I think we need to focus on reconciliation and trying to make things right as good people versus jumping from one cause to the next. Whether it be for Ukraine, whether it be for Black Lives Matter, whether it be for Asian hate, whether it be all of these things are happening. How do we help reconcile it, be better people, acknowledge that it's happening, try to make it right, 
and just level up right you know, as humans and also understand that we also had our subconscious racism that we didn't even know about reconcile that and come correct right and a lot of this is really about nations that have gone through wars gone through poverty gone through intense times that just are now for the very first time being able to speak candidly about lifetimes of trauma and honestly i like that you brought up other nations i'm gonna say this i'm gonna say it flat out right it feels like a lot of people who've gone through adversity are a lot quieter than the white people that are mad at other white people yeah. judging other white people about white privilege yeah. like it feels like as if you know a bunch of, of people who aren't even a part of the adversity went, guys, I'm aware of this adversity. You have to feel bad. You have to feel bad about yourself. And like, you know, this group is bad or, or whatever. But it's like, there's actually, at least from my perspective, you know, I don't really think I've met, you know, as much as the traumas and welfare. And, you know, there's another conversation there. You know, I've had the privilege of not really meeting someone of color that really is super politically charged about it. Most of the time, there is the humanity of of just still trying to do the job. You know, sometimes there's even more gratitude, you know, if they're able to get a job, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, I think our time's up for today. That Alrighty. was another cool round, man. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with me so openly, as always. Yeah. And your opinions. Thanks for having me. Appreciate I'm you. glad that you specified them as opinions. Yeah, right? That's, <laughs> that's what we're doing here. I think we both are pretty clear to say we admit to knowing nothing. Yeah. Um, but this is our take on the world, people. And just these are the father-son sessions, just having conversations about how we see it. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Till next time. Alrighty. He makes messages. 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 Messages.